Welcome to Matitsi Stories, the official podcast of the Matitsi Museums, exploring Matitsi area history through its people, places, and events. I'm your host, Amy Phillips, the Director of Education and Programs here at the Matitsi Museums. And this season, we're exploring the trades and industries that contributed to Matitsi's success as a town. This episode, we are joined by Michael Grauer with the National Cowboy and Heritage Museum, Cheryl Mullenbach, author of Stagecoach Women, and although you won't hear his voice, Tom Davis, who has done some wonderful research on Matitsi's early stage lines. In this episode, as with all Matisse Stories episodes, we ask that you ignore any background noise that may have made it past the editing stage. As we speak with experts throughout the nation and throughout the world, it's really hard to make sure that every single clip doesn't have any digital sounds or any any sound that was in the background of our panelists or even in our own studio. So please excuse all noises you might hear and enjoy the podcast. Matitsi's establishes a town in 1886. Prior to that, cattle barons and early ranchers settled throughout the Bighorn Basin starting in the late 1870s. At this point in U.S. history, the rate at which people are moving westward increases, and instead of traveling by covered wagon, people are starting to take the railroad. Um, my name is Michael Grauer. I'm the McCaslin Chair of Cowboy Culture and Curator of Cowboy Collections and Western Art at the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum in Oklahoma City. Um, railroads are pretty well across the West by 1880, particularly when the Santa Fe Railway reaches Santa Fe or the vicinity of Santa Fe. So the Transcontinental Railway had already been in place uh, both across the Central Plains, the Northern Plains by then, and then of course the Southern Plains and the Southwest is completed by, by then too. But uh, the presumption that everybody was riding a train, I think is a little bit of a mistake. Likewise, um, that everyone was going west in a covered wagon is a very common myth uh, amongst families. You know, grandma, great grandma and grand, great granddad came out here in a covered wagon. Well, probably not. They probably went there by train. So, but it was always a challenge um, because most people were had no experience with the West. And so they were often surprised by what, what, by what they found. The increase of people moving westward wasn't just because of the Transcontinental Railroad, although that certainly helped. The Homestead Act was signed into law in 1862, and the act allowed male citizens, or those who declared their intent to become citizens of the U.S., to claim federally owned lands in the West. Settlers could choose a 160-acre survey section of land, file claim, and then begin improving the land. Uh, this looked like plowing fields, putting in irrigation, building houses, barns, ranching, uh, digging wells. And then after five years of living on that land, they could then apply for the official deed or title deed of that area. And so this is how Matitsi gets a lot of its early settlers. And the Bighorn Basin is actually one of the last places settled by Euro-Americans in Wyoming. So it's no surprise that when this settlement does finally happen, the infrastructure for communication and supplies is next to non-existent. So for example, when Otto Frank settles in the Bighorn Basin and establishes the Pitchfork Ranch, he doesn't have access to a mail route and a supply line. He visits the area before settling on a big game hunting trip. And to do so, he travels on a railroad to Rollins, and then from Rollins, he travels approximately 140 miles overland to Fort Washakie. 
From there, he's outfitted by J.K. Moore, who owns the store and post office in Fort Washakie. Then Frank and his traveling companions began the journey over the Owl Creek Mountains and into the Bighorn Basin. It's not exactly an easy route. It was about connection because most of these towns sprang up along a transportation route or in association with a um, with some uh, some new capital activity. Um, so if it's cattle, it's Dodge City that springs up because of of, of capital. Um, you know, if it's a if it's an extraction mechanism like uh, minerals, mining, etc., that's where they sprang up. But you also had to be accessible. Um, and so uh, stage lines provided that co connectivity to the rest of the world because these places in the West were so isolated. I mean, Cherry Creek, in De that's now Denver. I mean, that was pretty hard to get to. Plus, it was real dangerous out there because it meant largely because Native Americans who were pushing back against uh, expansion. Um, but it, that was a way to be connected to the rest of the world. That was probably the, the you might say that's like the third level when you have passenger traffic. Um, so initially foot traffic and horse traffic, and then wheeled vehicles, and then stages probably about the third, and then trains. Um, so that it, was a, it was a way to be not so isolated. Josh Dean capitalizes on the lack of a mail route in the basin and establishes one in 1878. He takes the mail from Fort Washakie into the basin over the Owl Creek Mountains and then distributes it to the various early ranches, picking up their mail and taking it back to J.K. Moore's, where it will go overland to Rollins and then out to wherever its final destination is. Um, people would, uh, companies would bid on particular routes like the Overland Mail, uh, or the Overland Stage, which is one of the most famous. Um, that was a proposal to the federal government because the government could not afford to operate a stage line. Therefore, they left it to private contractors to come up with the, the best bid. Um, and that was that that the other part of that equation was, of course, was transportation for the military. Um, we presume that the military took care of all of its transportation needs. Um, and that was true up to a certain point, but not really for personnel, particularly officers. Officers rarely traveled um, with the troops. Um, so they either go by stage um, or by train often. Um, so um, they were left to private contractors to come up with, uh, oftentimes even the route, they were often um, uh, not necessarily charged with, but there was an expectation that they would find the most efficient route because the government didn't want to pay them uh, very much. They wanted to get, get, get by with the lowest bidder. Um, so yeah, private contractors. Routing supplies and mail from Rollins to Fort Washakie and then into the Bighorn Basin was expensive. Instead of just paying for transportation of supplies or whatever the case may be on a rail line, the early ranchers like Otto Frank had to pay for the cost of freighting those supplies overland. And this additional cost was really pricey. You might be thinking it's a waste of resources when you could just travel to and from Billings. However, the railroad didn't extend to Billings until August of 1882, and when it does make it to Billings, there's two additional challenges, and those are the Yellowstone and Shoshone, or Stinking Water, rivers, which don't have bridges across them at this point. Otto Frank and his fellow ranchers also see an opportunity when the railroad reaches Billings, and in April of 1883, Otto Frank writes a letter to the Board of Trades in Billings. And he says, gentlemen, I address your honorable body in the name of settlers and stock growers of that portion of Sweetwater County, Wyoming, 
of which Frank is the post office and center. It comprises the country bounded by the Owl Creek Mountains on the south, the Bighorn River on the east, the Stinking River on the north, and the Rocky Mountains on the west. The distance from Billings to Stinking River is 125 miles. To Grable River is 150 miles. To Gooseberry Creek is 160 miles. To Grass Creek, 175 miles. To Owl Creek is 200 miles. The distance from the Grable River to Fort Washakie is 125 miles. To Lander, 140 miles. Fort Washakie to Rollins on the Union Pacific Railroad is 160 miles. Heretofore, we have been getting our supplies from Fort Washakie and Lander. The road to those places is wretched in the extreme, almost impassable. The road from the Stinking River to Billings is very good. South of the Stinking River, the road is not so good and will require some work. Our principal bugbear, however, is Stinking River. The stream is very difficult to ford with wagons on account of the swift current and boulders. A ferry would not be feasible. The only remedy would be to build a bridge across the river. This can very easily be done at no great outlay of money. The stream is not very wide and has high banks, so that the bridge need not be a long one. He goes on to write, At a meeting of stock growers held at my ranch lately, it was decided to take the matter in hand at once, and to also apply to your honorable body for help. If you do the right thing, our trade, which is hereto gone to other places, will be yours. This trade is by no means a small matter. My ranch alone consumes nearly to the amount of $2,000 or more for groceries, hardware, and etc. I would suggest your honorable body send a competent man out to look over the road. Look over the ranches and investigate what probable benefit could accrue to the town of Billings by diverting our trade toward it. This would make Billings the shipping point for all beef cattle raised north of the Owl Creek Mountains, which is heretofore gone to Rollins and other shipping points on the Union Pacific Railroad. Captain Belknap, stockgrower on the Stinking River, and Colonel Pickett of the well-known explorer and sportsman will be in your town shortly and can give you all the information that you may desire about our part of the country. I beg your honorable body to give this project your careful consideration, and I remain yours very respectfully, Otto Frank. Just one month prior to Otto Frank writing that letter, the U.S. Congress actually authorizes a mail route from Billings into northern Wyoming. The proposed route goes from Billings to Pryor Creek to the Gap, across to Sage Creek, and then on to the Stinking Water River, or as you might know it, the Shoshone River. The route then ends at Corbett's Post Office, which is at the mouth of Dry Creek. Both the Yellowstone and Shoshone Rivers have bridges across them by 1884. And the Bighorn Basin is receiving mail at this point from both the Fort Washakie and Billings routes, depending on which side of the basin you're on. In March of 1883, uh, Mrs. Margaret B. Wilson files an application asking that the Frank Post Office, which was established in years prior, be moved to an unsurveyed location on Matizzi Creek. The name would be changed to Matizzi, and Mrs. Wilson would serve as the postmistress. According to Mrs. Wilson, on the application, mail would be delivered, Otto Frank co-signs the application, and the new post office is officially opened on June 14, 1883. The location is on the Wilson Ranch on Matizzi Creek, four miles above where it flows into the Grable River. And we have an account of what the early mail route and stage routes from Fort Washakie to Matizzi were like, courtesy of 
1936 publication of Stories of Early Days in Wyoming, written by a Mrs. Walker. The road from the Wind River Valley to the Grable Valley was a natural game trail, traveled first by Indians and later by prospectors and settlers. There were no bridges over the stream, and any improvement made was only temporary, being done at times of emergency by the stage drivers or settlers in order to pass over with their loaded wagons. The, wind, the Big Wind River was usually fordable, except during the season of high water, which usually lasted about three months. Many risks were taken at that time in crossing swollen mountain streams, and many accidents occurred. W.A. Spooner, while helping to drive a herd of cattle across the Wind River at Old Merritt Crossing, was drowned. Nearly every year, the river claimed victims from among those who dared to attempt a crossing when the melting snows had raised the stream to a dangerous point. After the building of a ferry by Mr. J.D. Woodruff, the first ferry to be operated on Wind River, the travelers could safely cross during early summer months. This ferry was near Old Merritt's Crossing. Woodruff was a sheep man and built shearing pens nearby. The wool sheared there was hauled to Rollins by J.K. Moore's string team. Between Wind River and the Owl Creek Mountains, the road crossed many streams near their source, so the lack of bridges was usually not a serious matter. There were no settlers close, but a mail camp had been established on Muddy Creek at the foot of the mountain. The climb up the southern side of the mountains was difficult. The first fall after the opening of this route in 1884, the mail contractors hired help to build a wagon road to the summit. After several weeks of strenuous labor moving rocks and building dugways, a passable wagon road with many hairpin turns was built to the top. The northern slope was less precipitous, consisting of open parks, timber, and only short, steep inclines in between. At the foot of the mountain was George Party's ranch, located on the south fork of Owl Creek. The crossing of the north fork of this creek was a short distance north and about six miles east of Party's. At that crossing was the ranch of George Smith. From Owl Creek, the road led in a general northwest direction up 21 Creek, then over the divide at the head of Prospect Creek to the head of Little Grass Creek. Then the stage road went down that creek past its confluence with the main Grass Creek to the LU Ranch. That ranch was established in the early 80s by George Baxter, later governor of the state. From the LU over the ridge to the northwest to Enos Creek, at the mouth of which was the Quarter Circle Y Ranch on Gooseberry, owned by Angus MacDonald. From the Quarter Circle Y, the road wound up the creek for five or six miles and then passed over the divide to the head of Iron Creek. It continues down Iron Creek to and across the Gravel River to Matitsi Creek, on which was the Frank Post Office. That post office, operated by Mrs. Andrew Wilson, was the end of the line. Mr. Wilson, with his wife and daughters, had moved from Ohio in 1881. These were the first white women to make their home in the Bighorn Basin. So the journey is by no means easy. Um, and when Josh Dean resigns from the Fort Washakie to Matitsi Mail Route in 1884, so the year after the Matitsi 
post office opens, the Grable Correspondence newspaper publishes that the new mail carriers were having difficulties getting the mail over the Owl Creek Mountains. It doesn't really come as a surprise, not only because of what we've just heard from Miss Walker, but also because stagecoaches and stagecoach driving was not an easy business to be involved in. First of all, remember these these routes are not going to be paved, um, so they're all going to be dirt tracks. There was always the danger of flash flood or bridges getting washed out. There were toll roads and toll bridges all the way across most of the time. People figured out that was a way to make a little money was to charge a toll. Um, as I mentioned before, your your draft animals could get hurt or in or uh, or sick. They just die sometimes, which is which is hard for us to believe. Um, you'd have a, a mechanical breakdown. Uh, that was also part of it. Um, you, there was crime that did happen, but rarely. Native people rarely attacked a stagecoach because there really wasn't anything on there um, that they that they could use other than the horses or the mules. That's really the only reason they weren't going to rob people. I mean, it was just pointless to to, to kill people uh, unless there was some sort of retaliation. So that's a challenge. Sometimes the driver would get sick or hurt, and then you were stuck because there was nobody there to drive it. Um, the, the guy who was the guard wasn't, didn't necessarily know how to drive the team, and that was a specialized occupation. I mean, there's a famous uh, black stagecoach driver, a, a woman, Stagecoach Mary, um, and she was known for her rigorous health and robust physique because she could handle this kind of stuff. That wasn't always the case with all these stagecoach drivers. And plus, they're, you know, everybody's trying to make um, a new life for themselves, and these guys would, uh, let's say, they would customize their resume. And say, oh yeah, I've been driving stages for for ten years. I know how to do this. <laughs> not not always the case. So there were all kinds of challenges: weather, of course, road conditions, animals, mechanical breakdown, attacks of some kind or another, crime. Um, and then if a passenger got hurt or sick, you you had to get there as fast as you could. But that was always a challenge too. Plus disease, and and the and the other thing is uh, uh, is water. Uh, something that's always a challenge in the West is the accessibility of drinkable water. Um, those road ranches and stage stops, they usually had that, but not always. So it, was, it wasn't an easy way to go, an uh, easy way to travel. By the mid-1880s, Matizzi has an established mail route despite its difficulties, and supplies are a lot easier to come by. In an 1885 newspaper advertisement appearing in the Daily Gazette, which is a Billings newspaper, it summarizes the stage lines. Once a week, a stage ran from Billings to Matitzi, which went through Laurel to Red Lodge to Dilworth before passing through Corbett and then finally arriving in Matitzi. And this is important because at this point, a stage is crucial for attracting families. Instead of just bachelors, you know, coming to the area to ranch, they're really bringing with them their families. Uh, you have the opportunity to establish towns. So without these early routes, Matizzi wouldn't have attracted the same kinds of people. You know, people like Mrs. Andrew Wilson were definitely outliers in that they were a little bit more enterprising than other women. Mrs. Wilson and her, her daughters are the first white women to make their home in the basin. So it's really important to have a stage line, but traveling on these stage lines is not pleasurable by any means. On a stagecoach, you had to plan. You had to be prepared. It was dirty, it was hot, or it was freezing cold. It was not comfortable. I mean, you're in a coach for um, nonstop. I mean, it didn't. You, you didn't stop and stay over at the, uh, at the Holiday Inn. You stayed in it. 
And if you got any sleep at all, you were lucky. So when you got to your destination, you were hungry, you were dirty, you were exhausted, um, but it got you where you were going and, and, and people kind of accepted it, but that doesn't mean there wasn't some grouse along the way. It was not a, a, a comfortable way to go. We've romanticized it. I mean, look at the, the famous John Wayne film, Stagecoach. And Hollywood does as much to distort things as anyone. Western fiction does as much as anything to distort. It, it took a, a particular kind of person uh, that was tough enough to travel by stagecoach. So I think that's important. You know, and because the rates were fairly reasonable, um, you had a, a, across demographics, you had a, a pretty broad spectrum. Um, and there wasn't uh, like you would on a, on a steamship back in the day where the, the primary cabins are up towards the top and steerage is where the lower cost. Everybody got the same seat. Um, so stagecoach traffic or, or, or uh, 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 carriage was, was relatively reasonable. So there was really not much breakdown there. Unfortunately, most of, most of these people are going to be white people. Um, the, the drivers sometimes were Hispanic, uh, sometimes black, um, and also the guards, but, but the passengers were almost exclusively white. It should be noted at this point that although traveling is difficult, many of the early ranch owners did so frequently, and they had the money to do so. Uh, Otto Frank, William Pickett, A.A. Anderson, and others, you know, the Tewksbury's, for example, frequently travel back to the East Coast during the winter and then return when the weather is a lot nicer. So at this point, you might be wondering if I could just get to the point. Um, if you've watched a lot of Western films, one of the questions that's probably at the forefront of your mind is how frequently these stages were robbed. And of course, I asked Michael the same question. I think much like um, the, the violence in the West is grossly exaggerated, likewise, the use of firearms is grossly exaggerated. Um, the number of robberies were the exception rather than the rule. Um, and, you know, they they were robbing coaches in Europe uh, when they had wheeled vehicles long before the U.S. was even around. And so there were highwaymen, um, some of whom became uh, sort of folk heroes long before you know, we heroicized Jesse James and Billy the Kid, which is nonsense, in my opinion. Um, there were celebrated highwaymen in England and France and so on, um, much like pirates got to be kind of romanticized and sexy, you know, same sort of thing was going on. Um, but it, it, that you didn't see it. You didn't see uh, stagecoach robberies all, really all that often. Um, the one of the worst places was in Arizona. Um, especially in the early eight and late seventies and early eighties, because there was literally a an outlaw uh, army uh, in southern Arizona that came to be called the Cowboys. That's where you get Wyatt and the rest of the Earp clan involved. Was because these guys were basically operating uh, because there was no law, so they got away with anything. So they were robbing coaches all the time down there. And once again, it's usually associated with what the uh, coaches were carrying, especially if they were carrying payroll or uh, bullion from one of the mines. Um, interestingly, uh, uh, on, on uh, when, when the, the beginning of robbing trains starts, uh, mainly in the 1870s, these guys didn't recognize what bullion was. <laughs> 
So if they if if it wasn't cash money or a or a gold pocket watch, they'd often leave the bullion and basically left most of the the valuable things there. But not so on the stagecoaches. They 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 expected and had insider information when a payroll would come or a shipment of gold would come. So that's why you see it in places like uh, Arizona, Colorado, and you know the whole uh, uh, gold boom in Colorado, for example, Northern California. Um, Deadwood, that's another another group coaches robbed. So again, it, it's very much part of that boom and bust cycle. The Matisse stage is robbed in 1887, and the story was covered extensively by newspapers in both Wyoming and Montana. The driver disappeared between Billings and Matisse with a sum of money belonging to the stage company, and also two certificates issued by the First National Bank to two separate individuals, but both were for $4,000. The robbers, Charles Warfield and H. Wagner, were arrested in July 1887, so just a couple months after the robbery, and they were both in separate locations trying to get away. So while the Matizzi stage was robbed, this being the most notable and possibly only event, it is an exceptional event, and it was not a common occurrence. Part of this could be that, unlike Deadwood or other wealthy areas, Matizzi doesn't have the things that robbers were after. But so far, we have been talking about stages and then mentioning freights. Uh, so what is the difference between a stagecoach and a freight line? Okay, stagecoaches were for human, for um, carrying humans from one place to another, and often the mail. Uh, freight was strictly goods, um, sometimes immigration, but mostly it's about goods. So f take, for example, the Santa Fe Trail was exclusively a commerce trail um, for the most part, um, both east and west. Um, with most freight wagons going west, uh, ox carts and mule trains going east um, from uh, New Mexico. Um, but there was also some stage traffic along the route. Um, but for the most part, stages, uh, stages are almost exclusively for humans and mail, sometimes uh, government dispatches, things like that. But no, really very little freighting going on on a stagecoach. One of Matisse's most famous or infamous, depending on your perspective, freighters is Bronco Nell. Um, and while we might think of her position in the industry as a woman freighting as unique, Cheryl's research tells us that she is certainly not alone. Hello, this is Cheryl Mullenbach. I'm the author of Stagecoach Women and uh, happy to visit with you from Iowa. First of all, people were, were usually surprised when they saw uh, a woman driver. And uh, in order to get um, government contracts, for example, to carry the mail, oftentimes uh, the government, of course, discriminated against women. And many times those uh, contracts were, for example, a woman who wanted to drive uh, the mail they would uh, use their husband's name on the contract, although they would do all the work. Uh, and sometimes, oftentimes, they, they kind of inherited the job. Like if uh, a young woman um, uh, was driving, it was many times because uh, their dad had been a driver and the dad became sick or wasn't able to drive, and then the woman would take, uh, take that job. So women uh, were perceived as uh, not being able to, uh, you know, handle a job like that. And there was um, one driver who uh, also became quite famous. So this may not be a new name to uh, people. Uh, Charlie Parkhurst 
also known as One-Eyed Charlie or Six-Horse Charlie, uh, spent uh, his life as a stage driver. But uh, amazingly, when uh, he died and went to the uh, doctor, uh, people found out that he was not a man at all, that Charlie Parkhurst was actually Charlotte Park Parkhurst. So the reason that uh, Charlotte uh, disguised herself as a man uh, is, is kind of a mystery. People don't really know, but uh, there's some uh, speculation about it that maybe, you know, she thought she would have to put up with being harassed and that sort of thing. I'll read a little bit about Charlie. Sometime in the 1860s, Charlie retired from stage driving and operated a saloon and stage station. He bought a farm and also brought in a little money lumberjacking. Rheumatism began to take a toll on the body that had bounced and jostled over thousands of miles during, during 30 years of exposure to all kinds of weather. Mouth cancer brought an end to Charlie's life. The tough old Jehu is what they call, Jehu is what they called stage drivers. The tough old Jehu drew his final breath during the last days of 1879. It was as his body was being prepared for burial that Charlie's lifelong secret was revealed and announced to the world. Charlie Parkhurst was a woman. Charlie Parkhurst, also known as Charlotte Parkhurst, daughter of Ebenezer and Mary Morehouse Parkhurst, was born in New Hampshire, but after the death of her mother, she was placed in an orphanage. At a very young age, she may have understood the advantages of making her way in the world as a male donning boys' clothes to slip undetected out of the orphanage. It's possible that Charlotte never revealed her gender to anyone again. However, news reports after her death claim the doctor who pronounced her a woman declared she had given birth. A California newspaper offered this explanation for Charlotte's decision. She may have been disgusted with the trammel surrounding sex and concluded to work out her fortune in her own way. Bronco Nell was certainly not the only freighter in Matizzi, um, and there's so many stage drivers, freighters, and people involved in the early transportation industry uh, of Matizzi that this episode is really just a drop in the bucket. Um, so we encourage you to learn more. We encourage you to start with Tom Davis's essays for which a lot of the things that you've heard come from. Um, and these essays can be found at the Matizzi Museum's archives. We will also be having, you know, some blog posts about this up on our website. And we also encourage you that if you're really interested in this, reach out and start a research project. Uh, we love to have volunteers that can look into these things that are of specific interest to them. So that's it for me. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Matizzi Stories. Uh, please rate and review the podcast wherever you listen, and we will see you next time. <laughs>